This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Happy New Year! We're recording this on the 2nd of January in a pretty empty office. Thea, obviously, with her continental craving for extended breaks, is off slacking somewhere. Lucy Dallas, indie pop star, is here instead. I was going to refer to your doughty Britishness. Yes, well, you just did, no, in no, fact. No, and now I have done. <laughs> yes. I mean, you can say that if you like. Doubtily British? Well, not really, right. no. Uh, Lucy? Yes. I've had a complaint. Well, this is a, yeah. I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah. But this is not the sort of complaint you might expect to, oh, me right. to get. Uh, from Robert Smith. Not that Robert Smith. I don't think that, that okay. Robert Smith. Does Stig Abel, he writes, invariably begin the otherwise excellent Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon by saying, my name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, as though the editor of the TLS is a post-nominal honorific, just to annoy the pedants out there? Good question. No, is the answer. Might he make it his New Year's resolution to begin with the more syntactically pleasing, I am Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS, or even... My name is Stig Abel, and I am the editor of the TLS. I Lara think... Porson is nodding here. We'll, we'll come to her in a moment. Does that make sense to you? Well, it does. Now, it, I, I'm not at all surprised that you got a letter like that, by the way. Why? Getting... My name is Stig Abel, no, the editor of the TLS. Makes sense. Like that for 113 years. I, I agree with that. No, but it's true. But actually, I, I think my name is Stig Abel, and I am the editor is actually better than I am Stig Abel, the editor of the yeah, TLS. What's wrong because with... also you're lots of other things. But what's wrong with my name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS? Because your name is not the editor of the TLS. Mm. Your name is Stig I was Abel. using a sort of and ellipsis. one yeah, of your many <laughs> wonderful I'll qualities I'll is it. that you I are will, the editor of the team. I will change it. I've been saying that for now 100... This is the 116th podcast we've done. We, you know what we're like? We're famously polite. At, no, no, I hadn't. We hadn't been sitting here seething. Yeah. But he, Robert Smith clearly has. He has. Well, Robert Smith, I'm going to change it. Listen next week and I'll, 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 I'll do the second one, do we think? And I am. I think the second one, unless Fine. you want to no. define yourself only in those terms, that's up to you. Let's focus on this week. We have a lovely paper to which you should all be subscribing, especially Easy Now There's a January Sale, and which has prompted this podcast. So, this week we'll be discussing the New York artist David Wonorovich. Wonorovich, yeah. Wonorovich. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I was calling this him Wonorovich. This is Lara Porson. Come on. Well, I was calling him Wonorovich very happily and publicly 
all the time until I was told off by Olivia Lang, no less, who said the first thing is you must pronounce his name correctly. Apparently it's Wonorovich. Wonorovich. Anyway, his reputation is on, on the up and he's a new one on me, but not on... Lara Pawson, who's written a brilliant lead essay on him. So she's in the studio, as you can hear, thankfully, to explain more. We'll also be talking about Jermaine Greer, rather more of a familiar figure to us all. Elaine Showalter has reviewed a new biography that frankly struggles to get to grips with her. Is she a genius or not? Greer, I mean, Elaine is definitely a genius. I think we'd all agree on that. And in our Christmas issue of the TLS, we announced the winner of the Mick Imlar Poetry Prize. It was Kim Adonizio, and she will read the winning poem for us at the end of the show. And it is a show, I should warn you, with the occasional bit of bad language in it. It's a bit sweary, but I know that won't bother you. I have to confess to not knowing much about David Wonorovich, the subject of this week's lead review by Lara Pawson, but there's something of a resurgence of interest in this lonely, ravaged artist who died in 1992 at the age of 37. Lara offers a short and remarkable sentence taken from his memoir Close to the Knives as the reason why. He says this, Dismissal is policy in America. Monorovich was suspicious of a country. He rather deliberately uses a lowercase a in America that dismissed, failed to pay due attention to many of its citizens, black men, homeless people, those suffering from AIDS, as he was. Monorovich's perspective was born of indigence and violence, his early life a litany of horrors. He was raped and attacked. Such was his poverty, his gums began to rot, Lara tells us. His writing and photography were visceral and unsettling and deliberately inclusive of those who lacked a voice or a vision. Not only did he insist on being heard and being seen, Lara says, but he opened his arms wide to bring others with him. So we might profitably turn to him to answer the fundamental question of how should we live now? Not for easy answers, but for inspiration in these strange and dangerous times of ours. Lara Pawson joins us in the studio to consider that question, which is a pretty appropriate one for the beginning of the year. Lara, hello. Hello. So, David, now we know how to say his name. Tell us a little about him. Who was he? Where did he come from? Why should we have heard of him? He, he basically made his name in the 80s in the New York art scene. But he was a writer as well as a painter and a performer, a photographer and also a poet. You know, I didn't hear about him till relatively recently. There are people who I know who, who were reading his work in the 80s and 90s. I didn't come across him until about five years ago, which is relatively recently. And when I started to read his work, particularly when I read the Waterfront Journal for this review, I was just completely blown away by him. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't come across him before. And I, I struggled to understand why he wasn't better known, more of a, you know, more of a, a, house, a household name. And why name. is that, do you think? Because, I mean, it's quite edgy. Yeah, I mean, peeled back. Is it is it edgy? I mean, he's know. he's he he. The Waterfront Journals, as as an example of of his work, looks at um, you know he talks to people who are prostitutes, um, homeless children, homeless men and women living on the street, criminals, and he gives their stories, their monologues, um, as kind of 
monologues of their lives. I don't know if they're to what extent some of them are slightly exaggerated or not. Personally, I don't particularly care. They're just brilliant stories that you don't normally hear from people. And I mean, from those kind of people. And I found myself thinking, even though I feel like I've been around the block a bit, I've, I've lived in war zones. I've done stories about people living in, you know, refugee camps, soldiers who've, who've killed people. As I read the Waterfront journals, I was struck by the fact that he was recounting stories of people who I pass every day, the kind of people I pass, and we all pass every day in the street in London. And they're getting worse. I mean, the argument that their plight is getting worse, yeah. there are more homeless people yeah. now than they've been in a, in, in a long exactly. time. And I, 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 I caught myself thinking, of, I mean, even actually just as I walked up to the news building today, walking past a homeless person... I do tend to be the kind of person who stops and normally has a chat, gives them a bit of money, something like that. I sort of guilt gets the better of me. But what's so interesting about um, Wonorovich's work is that he there's no sense of victimisation of these people at all. They have they're just completely brought to life as 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 the human beings they are, and you take them seriously. And I felt. I found myself, um, as I was reading these books and going through the catalogue for the Whitney Museum and looking at his work, finding myself sort of taking a step back from my own life in the moment that we're living in now and thinking how, you know, even though I live in a city where there's so much poverty around us, I'm, I'm perhaps sort of taking it for granted. He, he sort of sharpened my, my senses and, made, and has sort of made me more alert and more attentive to what's going on around me. And I think I want. I think in this, in that sense, it is edgy in the sense that these are not, as you say, they're not people whose certainly their voices are not usually heard. Yeah, people might talk margi- about them, yeah, because they're marginalised because yeah. they are put out onto the margin, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and part, a lot of that is on purpose. But sometimes it's as you say, it's you get a kind of blindness yeah yeah almost. and I think because he had lived among you know he'd been homeless himself he'd had a hard life I mean, he'd I, I, had an incredibly hard life I mean the details about his as you mentioned in the intro of his um upbringing are sh- really shocking I mean there's one one detail which isn't in the review of his father apparently shot the pet bunny and gave it to them to din- for dinner and didn't tell them that it, the bunny rabbit didn't tell them what they were eating until they were eating because it. they mean, were so poor well, or just because he was mean that to me sounds yeah. pretty sadistic yeah. I mean that's sort of sociopathic psychopathic behaviour isn't it I mean it's certainly yeah, I mean, you know you've got kids I don't have kids but yeah. I can't even even destroying a pet is a pretty cruel thing no, to do Lucy, let alone Lucy, have you Lucy, 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 no, Lucy have you or have you not no. ever served up a pet to your children I have not no but you know, the point is that he he comes from a background where he gets these people he he was turning tricks he was being a, yeah. a a rent boy, if you like. And so there's no sense of him patronising or kind of going into the undergrowth mm. to speak, you know, like a like a journalist. He's, so, he's yes, there amongst not, them. Well, you must hear about these people. It's listen to these people. Yeah, 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 this exactly. It's, it's, I, f- I feel really inspired by him and excited by his work. Is he a better writer then in that sense and a storyteller than he may be painter and photographer? Is that the bit that... Because the thing that resonated most reading your piece is the writing. Right, yeah. Well, that... I th- maybe that's because I started off looking at those two books, yeah. and I was, and I'm, and I'm a writer, so I, I was very inspired by his writing, and I took, I, I perhaps, 
I feel like I have a closer relationship with his writing than his art. But his art, his I mean, some people think his he wasn't much of a painter. I mean, the picture you've got here, history keeps me awake at night. I think is wonderful. I mean, it's so vivid. It's yeah. so the cover picture you've used, a, a snapshot, is yeah. um, it's, two, it's two men kissing on with a sort of matte background. I mean, the the, the, the thing is, cause this shows how sort of uncompromising is the the picture yeah. is called "fuck you, faggot fucker." <laughs> I mean, so when I talk about being edgy, it's it's on the yeah. it's on the sort of controversial ish side of the the ledger, isn't it? Well. I mean, I, I I don't know if fuck and faggot, I mean, are, are things that are controversial these days. But I, I mean, I hear what you say. I think it maybe it just show, goes to show how how tame so much so well, much art and literature is. I think these that's days. probably right. And also, presumably, in the eighties, he he had AIDS, and so he was politicising the issue of uh, how AIDS was being treated, how it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, yes, with. I think it it was politicised in the way it was in the way it was treated by the government, and he. He was a man full of rage, um, and and maybe that's why he appeals to me because I'm endlessly being asked why I always appear to be so angry. I'm kind of like, well, why wouldn't you be angry yeah, today? Yeah. And I and I love the rage that comes out of his work and his art. Um, and you know, I'm I'm I mean, I'm not a painter, I'm not an artist, but I the and I I respect the people who've said to me, look, his artwork isn't as good as his writing. But I think that the Whitney catalogue, you look through the work, and it's just there's so much. There's so much life coming out of yeah. it. The energy, you know, this man's dead. He's been dead 27 years, but his work is just pulsating with life. It's it's fabulous. I mean, I, I knew I'd get carried away. No, no, good. I, I no, must yeah. stay calm. I've also had a really strong coffee, sort of <laughs> slightly, you know. But I, I just feel you can't get enough of him. People well, need to really, you know, look at his work. And just in terms of what you, what we're saying about kind of controversial, or whatever, and you'd say about the Whitney catalogue, because there was a big exhibition, wasn't there, at the Whitney yes. in, in New York? And, yes. and you say in your piece that um, some people think it was a bit of a kind of sellout. Yeah. And sort of but, but some people think, well, finally he's being paid some proper attention and some people think well he's being airbrushed over what what do you think uh well i didn't see the show i've only looked at the catalog and i was cautious in my review not to not to talk about the show itself because i hadn't been to see it but looking at the catalog you know i take seriously what act up um who are the main critics aid the aids coalition to unleash power um who you know one one um, was a member of act up mm. back in the back in the 80s late 80s they twice protested inside the exhibition criticising its lack of information about HIV and AIDS today and they made the statement the AIDS crisis did not die with David Wonorovich. I would defend the, the Whitney curators certainly from reading the catalogue because the essays that they have incorporated into it talk very much about AIDS today. There, there, are, there are absolutely explicit references made to AIDS today and AIDS in his time. There's no sense they're trying to whitewash the truth. Mm-hmm. I think that Perhaps the more the the art critics who've looked at the catalogue had problems with the way that the exhibit some of his um, artwork was exhibited in ways that he never intended to exhibit it. So there's um, one piece called Metamorphosis made of plaster casted heads. Originally those were all shown together, but at the Whitney um, show they were each put individually on a plinth. Whether they museumified and yeah, and sanitized, perhaps sterilized, perhaps. I mean, it's inevitable. I think if you if you go into these big galleries, this happens to you know every every. It seems to me whenever you go to big galleries, this is this is one of the problems. The 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 space of the gallery seems Mm. to. 
perhaps suck a bit of the life out of the work. But for my for my own point of view, looking at the catalogue, I felt completely enlivened by it and educated by it and I didn't feel there was any sense that they were trying to flatten him out or depoliticise him. And actually you could make a, a countervailing argument that if you reduce him just to being an AIDS activist, if you if you, if you overstate yeah. the, the, that, yeah. then, you, then you diminish other parts well, of his, his life. That was, that was very much my feeling and I think that, you know, one of the things that I think is so impressive about Wonorovich is that he, you know, he was a, he was a white gay working class man who ended up dying of AIDS related causes but he was very very alert to the problems for example of um, race relations and racism in America and I found myself thinking that you don't he shouldn't be pigeonholed he was much Mm. more than that he was much more alert to the politics of class and so to criticize that I mean I feel like I'm treading on really dangerous ground that I'm going to get act up writing in and shouting at you Stig about about me but I just found myself feeling like you know that precisely what you said that he's a he is a complex man who was addressing lots of complex issues and he shouldn't be just identified with AIDS is there is the piece we should talk about before the end, um, there's most famous the Rambo things he did. So he he got his friends to the photo of the of Rambo. Yeah. Uh, not Rambo. I mean, how would you pronounce Rambo? Rambo. Oh, yeah. the French one. Arthur Rambo. Arthur Rambo. Arthur Rambo. Not John. Not 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 the other Rambo. Not John Rambo. Because <laughs> I don't want people to be misled by this. But there's a picture of that Rambo. Would, that would be interesting, but but different. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he put him on his friends, and they were doing things around New York. Yeah, is that yeah. the thing he's most famous for? Do you well, think? it seems to be the thing he's most famous for. But I have to say, having really looked at his work in depth um, at the end of last year, I feel that you know, the Waterfront journals for me are just absolute brilliance. Yeah. And 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 if people want to get a taste of him, buy that book and and read the read the monologues in it. They are astounding. I mean, I was trying to hope, I was hoping that you might let me read one. Yeah, on go on. Yeah, is go that, for oh, it. Of course. Time? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. It's a short one. And yeah, it's, go for it. It is a bit edgy. The, well, that's fine. I don't mind that. But the, the Rambo one includes uh, someone masturbating. But masturbating something that everybody does. It's fine, exactly. So, but when I read that they concluded that, I obviously Googled it and it does. That, 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 I'm so, sure yeah, it does. I did, yeah. I did check that. Yeah. <laughs> but the only thing I thought about that Rambo thing was it just felt a bit silly to me. I mean, I, did I, it? I just thought, what, what is one to conclude from it? I don't know. It's just sort of prankish. It's sort of art student prankery to me. Do you sort of... think so? Have you looked at the I've images? Seen, Have I've you seen the images, yeah. Images? Yeah, and they're sort of quite bleak, black and white, someone on a subway in them, someone yeah. naked yeah. in them, all in this with this face on them. I, it didn't didn't move me at all. Right. Whereas and it, did the, where, it make you think about history? and? Not no? really. No. In a way that when I've read the bits that you've quoted here and then looked into a bit of the, the Waterfront journals, that feels more significant to me because it's, it's right. giving voice to the voiceless and, and, and telling stories yeah. whereas putting a face on I might be I'm being maybe brutish. we should hear his writing fine. as well as, oh, um, I'm not going to try and do his accent or his fine. voice okay I'm just going to read that's it but I just think this how story, long is this Lara? it's only it's go on that page that. two pages that's it go it's on barely two pages barely two pages look I think it's a podcast we don't have any deadlines to hit this is called Young Man in Silver Dollar Restaurant New York City One night I was down by the Hudson River, around the parking lot, where out-of-towners cruise in their cars, and I was walking around checking out the river and the people. I walk to the end of the lot where there's not too many cars, and this voice says, Hello, 
and I turn and there's this handsome guy sitting in his car with the motor going, so I walk over and lean on the door and talk to him for a while. He was pretty cool, I mean friendly and handsome. I checked out his body, his arms and chest were really nice and I glanced down at his crutch but it was in the shadows. After a while he asked me to get in the car and go for a ride. We went up the Hudson to a place along the river in the 20s or 30s where there's this old railroad track that ends suddenly at the river's edge. It was a hot night and the windows were open and he pulls out some reefer and we were smoking and talking for a while. At some point his hand slid over onto my leg and I was feeling good so I reached over and put my palm on his chest and rubbed it slow moving down towards his crutch. When my hand reached his legs it just passed through the air. I mean, my hand suddenly went into nothingness. You know that moment when your brain is given information that's almost too much for it to deal with, like something so unexpected that it can't be broken down right away. I stopped for a second and this guy's still rubbing around my leg and I decided that I was just going to ignore the fact that he had no legs and at some point he reached over me and hit this lever on the bottom of my seat and it made the seat fly back so I was parallel to the ground and he does the same to his seat and then lifts himself up on his arms and swings up and over onto me and I close my eyes and move with it. After we had sex, he told me he lost his legs in Vietnam. He said he stepped on a minefield two days before he was going to head home. So he's sitting there in this field, still conscious with both his legs gone, and he sees this helicopter coming to rescue him, and it landed right on a mine and blew up. Three copters, one after another, blew up, trying to rescue him, and finally they get him out of there. After telling me this, he suddenly says desperately, I need some hot water right away. So I give him directions to my place and he pulls up outside my house and says, make it really hot and bring a rag or something. He seems almost hysterical, so I don't question it. I run upstairs, boil some water and bring it down in a plastic container. He asks if he can keep it and I say, yeah, and he takes off. I go upstairs and my boyfriend comes out of his room and says, what's going on? And I don't know what to say. Um. And the whole it's th- just fantastic, and the whole, isn't it? Brilliantly. You just don't know where it's going to no, go. No, no. You have no idea. It's what's fantastic. And also, all of his stories, every single story, the first line is amazing. I yeah. mean, the first line of um, Close to the Knives, which came out in 2017 with Picador, the first sort of two sentences of that are about uh, two pages long. And it's just, I mean, I was going to try and persuade you to let me read that as well but I think maybe that's a bit too much that, I, I think but I think go and read that as an opening line for a book it's the best it's just it blows your mind I tell you what Laura, I hope that people listening to this and reading your piece will will go off and, mm. and read something of his yeah. do you think you want to yeah I, that, that, I love that, that I love that sort of stuff it's sort of a bit reportage maybe it's a bit short story-fied as well yeah. you don't yeah. know how much is real yeah yeah but that sort of American voice I think sounds mm. yeah amazing yeah read in a read in a very English voice. You read it very well. Sorry about that. Laura, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Jermaine Greer will be 80 years old at the end of this month. She has been, in a way, remarkably consistent throughout that long life. When she was at convent school, her classmates frequently cried, Oh, Jermaine! at the latest shocking thing she said or did. And you could argue that we've all been saying, Oh, Jermaine! ever since. As a feminist, writer, academic, pundit and now environmental campaigner, Jermaine Greer has challenged norms and received opinions, sometimes in a very dynamic and creative way and sometimes maybe not so much. Elaine Showalter has reviewed a new biography of Jermaine Greer for us and is here to talk about the book and the subject. Elaine, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Um, I wondered if we could start by talking about what the what the sort of stated aims of the biography. So it's, this called, it's, called, it's called Jermaine. Yes, sorry, by Elizabeth Kleinhens. Yes. You say in your piece she's quite specific about her, her stated aims. Yes, I mean, she really narrows it down. She very carefully narrows it down. And she says she wants to talk, she begins by saying she wants to talk about Greer uh, in terms of her leadership in second wave feminist movement. And then she wants to get to the true Germaine, the woman behind the mask. But both of these aims really get thrown out pretty early in the book. And it settles down to be uh, a biography, really uh, a personal one about her life, not very much about her work, and focusing on Australia. Yes, it's, it seemed an odd idea to claim that you're going to find out the truth behind the mask without first finding out whether there is a truth behind the mask. But anyway, that that she admits that she thinks there isn't one, as it were. Yeah, and she doesn't even really know that much about the mask when she gets started, or even that there is a mask. Yeah. But it's a kind of generic, you know, idea of a biographer, mm-hmm. and and that's where she starts. But how can you do a biography of someone who is effectively a public intellectual and therefore should best be known? by her work well, without it, doing it, the work. That's it, what Exactly. Seems, yeah. I mean, and, and, and Kleinhoff sets out and she says, she's not going to write an academic study. She's not going to write about Greer's work and Shakespearean scholarship, feminist studies, women's literature. Well, that, you know, narrows it down quite a bit. Um, and even the books are not very fully discovered. But what she had was this archive. And Greer's archive was sold to the University of Melbourne, and Kleinhans lives in Melbourne, and and that's where she based her work. So it, it, there's more to it than that, but it certainly she's drawn a very small circle in the middle of this enormous um, sphere that is the life of Germaine Greer. 
I would just, uh, just from from your point of view, do you think it's possible to talk about Jermaine Greer without without mentioning cause, because because the phrase you just quoted and the, the rest of it, she says, "I'm not going to talk about Shakespearean scholarship, feminist studies, women's literature, and the rest." And the rest, <laughs> Which, I know. I mean, it, it it is comical, and there are comical things about it. Now, this is a huge life, and I think Kleinhead's is 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 good, particularly on her growing up in Australia and the anarchist and dramatic communities in Melbourne and Sydney, the push, the drift. I just love those names. And an earlier biography by Christine Wallace, I think, is much more solid and, and complete in dealing with, with, with Germaine as, a, as an intellectual. But it's 20 years old. That's the key. And a lot has happened in those 20 years, which changed the story. And what, yes, what, what yeah. is that? Because... Uh, you, you quote A.A. A. Gill saying, Jermaine Greer is the single most influential and memorable human being of the 20th century, yeah. which is a silly thing to say, but you know you can kind of see the point of what he's making. You yeah. couldn't even make a joke about that for her in the 21st century, could you? Because you could make an argument that in the manner potentially of lots of public intellectuals, writers, when they get older, they don't yeah. always keep up the same quality of work. Is that fair? Are they in danger of tarnishing their reputation? Well, I, you know, I, I think so, and she certainly, the past 20 years, have taken her in the direction of contrarianism and, and outrage, which certainly characterized her early career, but was only part of its publicity. You know, there was so much more to it. And the headlines in the past 20 years certainly always seem to be Greer offends this person and insults the other and takes an outrageous position on this. It's a complicated story, and, and what happens in the biography, I think, is that Kleinhans becomes quite disillusioned. She starts out really starry-eyed, and she maintains that to some degree, although by the end she's really reduced to kind of clucking about things that, that, that Greer has done and being outraged by some of her books and resorting to this uh, idea at the end, well, she's a genius, and geniuses are totally crazy, and we don't really understand what motivates them, so that explains you know any issues that we see here and you you, you talk about uh, that there's a shift in tone which I think that Kleinhens also talks about and uh, and early on you say she's got energy, courage, originality, and panache, which seems yeah. to me a brilliant kind of summing up of, right. of of everything that was kind of exciting you know about her, but then later she it's grumpy, sour, curmudgeonly, and she starts attacking transgender women and what she calls lifestyle feminists. Do you think that she's maybe at her most effective when she's got a really good target to aim at, a really good kind of adversary? Well, I, I, I think so. But, you know, there are also parts of her that are very different. I mean, the, the whole American piece of her career is, is, is mentioned but not very much discussed at the University of Tulsa, which nobody can really quite get, especially um, a biographer writing from Australia who, as far as I can see, never went to the United States or indeed to England mm. um, to meet any of the people involved with this. But you know, Jermaine Greer really created quite a little academic center at Tulsa, which still survives, and it was tremendous scholarly aims and successes. That's just a tiny piece of the work. The question which is asked, and you mentioned this in the review, is she a, she's a genius, and therefore you've got to put up with her, her yeah. misbehavior. She, is Jermaine Greer 
seriously a genius? I mean, I know the phrase genius doesn't really mean anything technically, but but would you, it sounds like, is that a word too far to bandy around in connection I, with her? I think it is in her case. I don't think it's necessary. Brilliant intellectual, very, very hardworking scholar, tremendously gifted because she was an actress, terrifically gifted as a speaker, a talent that she put to excellent use in all of her work as a public intellectual and her broadcasting and so on, which is the way I think a lot of people know her now, and tremendous self-confidence intellectually and daring. All of these things are extraordinary. And she had an extremely bold and courageous life as a woman, something that she chose early, stuck to, you know, for 80 years, full marks for all of this. So I think she's a bold and remarkable figure, and I think someone who stands up well on the world stage. I mean, I know there are a lot of feminists who who have a problem with her and who always did have a problem with her, but the the impact she made with her writing and, as you say, with the way she talked and behaved, because she didn't kind of sit down and agree with people. No, she no. just She said what she thought. She is a diva. She is a diva. But that's I mean, okay. I've only met her two or three times in various places and contexts, but she's always a diva, and deservedly so. And yeah. she holds her own, you know. Uh, well done, I think. But it, it's funny, too, in the book, because Kleinhunt starts out talking about her own contacts with Greer, which were only by mail. I mean, not even email, as far as I can tell. Uh, snail mail. And she sort of tut-tuts because she says Germaine was really quite rude to her and haughty and condescending. And I just think when I'm reading this, you know, do not be beastly to your biographer, uh, especially if she's just starting the book, because there is a kind of feeling that in her own way, Kleinhans gets back. Mm. Uh, at career yeah. by bringing her down to... But, I mean, level. why should she be nice? She hasn't been nice her whole life, and she doesn't have to be nice. Okay, but, but it's nice to be nice. I, it I, is I, nice I, to I kind be nice. Of feel I'm being devil's advocate. But, yeah, but also, but I, th- I wonder how many women there were in public being bolshy and saying, no, actually, I'm right, you listen to me, you know, all that kind of thing. I think there was basically her and not that many more. I, yeah, that's a, that's a, that seems to be a good, a good argument. I guess the contrary argument is that if you, if you take that to a fault, you become known as curmudgeonly and contrarian and, and therefore you're not intellectually respected because you're seen to take the, the, the cussed approach to everything. And that's yeah, a risk with her, mean, isn't it? And and she, you know, she she punches down, yes, uh, in yeah. in a way. I mean, not yeah. necessarily in terms of celebrity, but um, Clinton says at the end that she's attacked Kate Middleton. Um, you know, Mother Teresa. Everybody's had a shot at Mother Teresa. And finally, in Princess Diana, what is the point? And finally, Michelle Obama. This is just unnecessary. You know, we really don't have to go that well, far. Well, I'm interested it's in, just meanness. If I'm a 20, say I'm a 21-year-old feminist, yeah. y- young woman, what do I know about Jermaine Greer? What, if, if, I, if I confront the name Jermaine Greer now, it's unlikely to be in the context of... Um, the female eunuch. It's unlikely to be celebrating her as a pioneering feminist. It's going to be her as a figure who, either rightly or wrongly, depending on your point of view, has a problem with trans issues. Yeah. And is 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 this curmudgeon rather than someone who's just willing to take on difficult ideas? Yes. I mean, I think she's hardly, you know, at this point, a, a revered senior figure. 
um, in, in, in second wave feminism. It's receding into history. A number of the big figures are disappearing. And she doesn't have the kind of sense of, of, of a reverent following. Say, for the example, that Gloria Steinem does, who is another contemporary. Mm. There's a play on, uh, on Broadway in New York now called Gloria, which is really about the life of Gloria Steinem. And and people come, you know, with great admiration. It's definitely a kind of reverence and salute to a legend. And I don't think Jermaine Greer has that. Can we talk a bit about what about what she's campaigning for now? Because it seemed to me that recently, and I agree, she's made lots and lots of, as you say, statements that seem almost pointlessly kind of aggressive and, yeah. and, the, and mean, unpleasant. But the, but the trans thing, I think, is a fascinating the trans issue, thing is for, a serious issue for feminism. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Elaine, I don't know what you, you can tell us what you think of this, that it's become a, a critical issue in the new wave of feminism, which has split a lot of people in the feminist movement, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and is she helpful because she's fearless and she's willing to tackle difficult ideas, or is she harmful because she'll, she'll just split the pack 50-50 and, and that won't do anyone any good? I, I think she's harmful. I mean, I think that, first of all, she's personalised it. She started out by personalising it and blocking or trying to block the admission of a trans woman to the faculty, you know, at Cambridge, which I thought was a terrible mistake. And she lost that battle, and I think rightly so. But then to start using really insulting terms to talk about pantomime dames, to talk about mutilated mm. men, it's not a rational discourse. It's not um, heading up an argument, a complicated argument, and I think one that has tragic implications in many directions, you know, for people's lives and um, decisions and futures. It, it's not the kind of tone, it's not the kind of intellectual reason that you would want from a feminist leader. No, um, no, I agree, and that's and that's problematic. And she still, I mean, she's she's that that seems to be very much what she what she thinks, and that's what she says. But the yeah. other uh, the other area, which uh, it seems to me to be a much more positive area that she's been working in, is is environmental campaigning, which I think is kind of slightly people think it's a hobby. You know, it's, it's kind of slightly dismissed. They go, oh, yeah, now she's kind of into gardening. But she's, you know, she's written quite an important book and she's done a lot of important work and she's trying to highlight and save an area of the world which was being destroyed. I wondered if this kind of brought back her zeal because because uh, campaigning for the environment, again, that's a good enemy to campaign against the kind of destruction of the planet. I think you're absolutely right. It's a, it's, it's a good enemy. I mean, you know, I mean, destruction of the environment and it's a good cause protection of the environment um, whereas the whole transgender thing this is a human issue with so many problems and delicacies and, and, and complexities the environment I think we can all pretty much agree on that and she's thrown herself into it um, you know body and soul and income and everything and and I think I think it's an important important decision and I think she also seems to be getting some real personal satisfaction out of it yeah um I wonder just before we before we have to go um if you could tell us about the image this wonderful image you use this brilliant distillation of her you use it to close um your review well uh, the david David Plant wrote her about her in a book called Difficult Women, which was a controversial book, and you know not exactly flattering to the women, particularly Germaine Greer, but he gives this 
tremendous image of her, this picture of her. He went to visit her in Italy at her villa in Tuscany, and he sees her out in the garden yelling at the flowers, cursing the flowers, and telling them, bloom, you fucking, fucking flowers, bloom, bloom. <laughs> and I just love that. I love the image of, of, of Germaine, this indomitable uh, Mother Earth figure challenging nature to perform at her behest. And they damn well better do it, yeah. is my view. <laughs> Hello, Sherwell. Let's leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. There's a kind of futility in that image as well, which is possibly not entirely irrelevant, Lucy. I don't know whether it worked. Well, it won't work, will it? (laughs) Shouting at flowers. I'm no gardener, as you know. Are you a a gardener? Yeah. Are you actually a gardener? Should I tell you a secret? Are we on air? Yeah, we're on air. No, no, this is is on air. This is for the purpose of... Oh, well, no, I'm not going to tell you then. (laughs) Oh, come on. How how secret is it? (laughs) All right, it's not really a secret. Go on. I am such a gardener. I've got an allotment. You've got an allotment. Yeah, but you're not allowed to talk about it. On well, the it's, podcast. It's too late now, isn't it? You've just told us on the podcast. This will now go out to literally tens of people. <laughs> You've got an allotment. So when I introduce you as indie pop star, I can now introduce you as allotment owner. This is why I didn't want to well, tell you. It's too you. late now. That, 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 in many ways, that that's <sighs> moment has gone. And what do you do? Do you, pot, do you potter? You potter in allotments, don't you? Well, you actually do rather hard work. Do you? Do you have a shed? Do you have a shed? Not really allowed a shed. I'm very sad about the shed. I've got a sort of arbor, but that makes it sound grander than it is. Yeah, Michael Caine's the doctor. He has a shed. He's got an amazing shed. Have you been to his shed? Yeah, yeah, I've been to his shed. Yeah, he's full of books and guitars. He's a shed dweller, though, isn't he? I mean, he looks like a shed. (laughs) Not in a David Cameron sense. Not that kind of. No, not not that kind of. Not ruin the country and then sit in a shed. No, Michael hasn't done that. No, no, but sort of sit intellectually in a shed. (laughs) If you say so, Stig. Nothing wrong with calling someone intellectual. I hope we can still do that on the TLS podcast. We can just about. Okay. Mick Imler, the late poetry editor of the TLS, once said that you saw so much romance in competition, and he was right, as the competition that now bears his name demonstrates. This year it was won by Kim Adonizio for People You Don't Know. According to the chair of the judges, Alan Jenkins, it struck them with the boldness of its tonal shifts and the way it marries wit and earnestness, threats and humour. It's a worthy winner, and after last year, another triumph for American poetry. I'm delighted to say that Kim is on the line to read us the winning poem. Kim, welcome. Hi. Before we hear it, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the poem? What was What's your aim here? Well, it's kind of part of a new direction I've been taking with longer lines and just trying to get more of the world in, thinking a lot about metaphor. And really, it just came from, you know, thinking about how often with my students, when I teach, you know, I see a bunch of people and they just look like ordinary people, you know, and then you sort of scratch the surface and it's amazing, uh, you know, people's stories. And and it just makes me think about all the people walking down the street that I I look at and, and have no idea as the poem begins what's inside them. So that's kind of the impetus for the poem. That's where it came from. It's a very fine idea. Let's, let's hear the poem. It's People You Don't Know. People You Don't Know. You have no idea what's inside them. Slipped gears and downed wires. Rotted out floor planks. Maybe anemones. Maybe a billion spiral galaxies. There's the famously beautiful, famous poet you once saw through an open bathroom door, projectile vomiting into a sink before the door swung closed again. You're afraid to open that big box of wine, certain a mouse got trapped inside, but it's only styrofoam rubbing against more styrofoam. 
like the sex you used to have with people you didn't know. Some people smile when they hate you. Racking sobs are usually a good indication they've been gutted by fire. Liars are supposed to be betrayed by the direction their eyes dart, but good liars know this, so the truth is anyone's guess. Eye contact may be indicative of rudeness or the early delusional phase of love, the early delusional phase of love, the early delusional phase of love. When a woman at a party says, I like your necklace, a multiverse of possible interpretations yawns open like a meat-eating plant. Sometimes it's better to stay in the lobby where the bar is so as not to discover the creeping mold in a room with a parking lot view. Then again, if that stranger absorbing vodka's a few stools down would only glance your way and give you a sign, you just might go there. <laughs> Kim, I say, it's a, what a lovely poem that is. Kim, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Congratulations really again. Thrilled. That's Kim Adonizio, winner of the Mick Imlar Poetry Prize for 2018. And that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks to Kim, Elaine Showalter and Lara Pawson. My thanks to Lucy Dallas. Thank you for having me, as you, ever. You can go back to your allotment now. I shall. Thea's probably back next week, do we think? Yes, yes, she is back next week. So we'll work out what we're going to talk about, but I hope we're going to discuss the rather undervalued writer Nancy Cunard. Do you know much about her, Lucy? I'm going to say ships. I'm going to say Paris. Yes, Paris. 1920s. Paris in the 20s, yeah. There you go. And we've got an undiscovered short story by her, which we'll be publishing in the paper. So we'll try and talk about that. Until next time, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.